She won't fall asleep, and then this girl sitting next to us, an Indian woman about our age, and this was at the low point of the plane ride home, looks over to us and says, did you adopt her? And I said, yes, we did. And she said, that's a very noble thing to do. You're very, very noble. And I put my head literally in my hands. I would have started crying like a baby if I weren't a 34-year-old man at the time. And I said to myself and to, and to the Lord, I don't feel very noble. This isn't what I imagined it to be. Not that there was regret. It wasn't regret. It was the pain in Sidi and all the books that we had read about grief and about the hole and the primal wound and, and all those things were coming crashing down, I think. Now that the, the rescue was over, the hard work was about to begin. And I think that a lot of people who are going through an adoption journey, they think that the hard work is the paperwork and the dossier and the fingerprints and the interviews and the assessments. And that is all just like boot camp in a way to sort of prepare you for what's ahead as best as possibly can. I think that the real ride was starting to begin on that plane trip home. Adopted children are often exhorted to be thankful for the many privileges they have as a result of having a forever family. This interview with two sets of adopted parents will encourage that gratitude, but also acknowledge that side by side with a grateful heart is often a broken heart as a result of feeling abandoned by their birth parents. It is our hope that adoptive parents and their children will see the wisdom of acknowledging such pain and be encouraged that this grief does not diminish the bond between the adoptive parent and their child. My name is Sharon Betters, and I'm the executive director of Mark Inc. Ministries. And Mark Inc. exists to produce and distribute resources that offer help and hope to hurting people. And we have our signature resource, which is our Learning to See When the Lights Go Out audio library. Each one of these interviews is a story of a person or a family that has experienced a broken place in their life or a difficult pathway, and they share with a listener uh, how they responded to that, that hurt and what helped them as they walked that pathway. My husband and I started out this series with our interview on the loss of a loved one, where we talk about the loss of our own 16-year-old son, Mark, and his friend, Kelly, and how we had to really struggle to reconcile God's love with his sovereignty. And so we want to give the same kind of help and hope to others that we received from people who were further along in their own pathway of life. There were people who called back to us and encouraged us that in our grief, we weren't crazy, that we were normal, and that God was sovereign and we could trust him. And we want others to hear that same message. I am so excited today to have in the studio with me Lisa Adams-Reese, our son Dan Betters, and his wife Laura, so that we can just chat a little bit about adoption and look at some of the parts of adoption that perhaps a lot of people don't even understand exist. Some of the grief of adoption, not just for the parents who are creating that what we call a forever family for children who need parents, uh, but also for the adopted child. We hope that our discussion today is going to open up discussion for families who have adopted children, maybe a grown-up adopted child who may be struggling with issues that he can't even pinpoint. 
And so the people in the studio today have their own perspective. Lisa has adopted children herself, and she also now places children for adoption. And so, Lisa, I'd like for you to just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Yes, I started um, thinking about adoption actually when I was 12 years old. In my eighth grade graduation, I said that I was going to adopt two children and that they were going to be from Korea because at that time, those are the only international children that were placed was from Korea. So that was on my heart since I was 12 years old. And then I got married and had children and we had three biological children. And then all of a sudden, the desire came back, and I really thought about adopting, and I definitely wanted to adopt internationally. I don't know if just God placed that in my heart, but I believe He did. And throughout even parenting my first three kids, I would have like these times where I would hear a child crying in the background or someone calling for mommy. And I never really understood except for I just had this deep yearning to help this child that needed their mommy, you know, and it would just almost break my heart when I would hear these cries. When my son was five, my youngest son, um, we decided to go ahead and um, look into adoption, and we did, and we went through the different agencies, and then we decided to adopt through an agency that really needed families for children from India. So our first daughter, she came to our family from India. It took us about a year to get her home, which is really unusual now. From start to finish, it takes a lot longer. We decided to adopt from India because that's where the need really was. There was a lot of babies at that time who were actually considered aborted babies. The mothers would go to nursing homes and have these babies at seven months. And then this one lady would go there and she would take shoe boxes and they would put the babies in the shoe boxes and bring them back to the agencies. And these babies were coming over at four and five pounds. They were very tiny little babies, obviously really needing homes. And so we put our name in and a year later we got a call. And our daughter, usually they were like a day or two old and our daughter was a month old. And she came home at eight weeks old. But her story was that a birth mother tried to keep her, really wanted to keep her, but she lived on the streets and knew she couldn't take care of her in the proper way. So she came to us at eight weeks old, and we loved the whole process so much, even though she cried a lot and there was a lot of issues health-wise with her, but we just loved it. And so we decided to go again. And we wanted to adopt a little boy this time. So we went to the agency and said that we were ready again. And and this time, we heard about a little boy in Guatemala that needed a home. And the lady who was the director of the Guatemalan program said, oh, I have lots of waiting kids. Don't you want to see their pictures? And I said, no, I don't, because I'll want all of them. And that's not going to be good. So just I let's look for this little boy. So we did, and we couldn't find him. So of course, we looked at the pictures, the waiting kids. And not only did we find a little boy, but we found a little girl at the same time. And we decided to take two kids at one time. 
Both kids were physically disabled, which we knew. We didn't know to what extent, but they were both physically disabled. And um, so we started that process. Those kids came home, and then they had a lot of issues, really a lot of emotional issues, and it was very, very difficult. And how old were they? They were two and three when they came home. And were they siblings? No, they were not related. And I don't know what I was thinking since I already had four kids and here I'm adopting, you know, two more. And so that made six. And they had a lot of issues, like I said, and adopting two at one time. Nowadays, you can't do that. But at that time, um, unless they are really siblings, and I thought I could handle it. And it was really a tough time in my life with these two kids, mainly not because of their physical disabilities, but their emotional issues. They had a lot. And then the agency called us and said, we have this little boy in Guatemala that really needs a home, and we think he looks just like your family, and you should adopt him. And I'm thinking, oh, no, you know. And I had my six kids, and I thought, you know, three girls, three boys, this is perfect. I said, no, I can't, you know, take on another child. And she says, okay. I said, just look for another family, please. And she says, well, I'm going to keep him here for a little while until you call me back. He's very emotionally disturbed, and we know that you can really work with emotionally disturbed kids. And I'm going, I don't think so. So we hung up the phone, and then a week later, I got a call from a family who was going to Guatemala, and her husband couldn't go. So she asked me if I could go and help her pick up her kids. And I said, sure. So I did. Of course, they brought out this little boy, and I looked at him. I just knew he was my son, but I also knew knew there was something about him that he really did look a lot more emotionally intact than, you know, what they were saying. So we went back and we did the process and decided to take our last child. So Michael came home at four, although the dentist says he was five or six when he came home. He was actually the easiest child of all my kids. So it does go to show that sometimes it's not just the age that matters. And then I was very lucky. My oldest daughter, who was nine at the time, Kristen, from the time she came home, decided she wanted to adopt. So the earliest she could adopt, she was single. She adopted my first granddaughter, who is now 13 and was 17 months when she came home. And then she knew the Lord was telling her she had another daughter in India. And so she adopted her second child, um, who was 13 months when she came home. So adoption has been a very, very important part of my life. Now what I'm doing is I'm placing children from India with families, and I, I love it. <laughs> you know, I hate it and I love it. It's a difficult process, but it's so well worth it. Well, that's a perfect lead-in for Dan and Laura, because that's how we met you, Lisa, through Dan and Laura's journey into adoption. So Dan and Laura, introduce yourselves to our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourselves. Well, my name's Dan Betters, and I'm Laura. I'm Dan's wife. And we've been married for 10 years, and we decided to adopt three years ago. And our journey was an interesting one. If you had told me that I was going to have an Indian daughter, you know, even just as short as five, six years ago, I would have thought that you were crazy. And I would ask, uh, you know, why is my daughter in India? You know, so adoption was really never in my life plan. Yeah, it, it probably occurred for me in college. I remember taking a women's studies class and 
the professor was going on and on about the treatment of children and women in India. And I remember this thought occurring to me. It had never occurred to me before about adoption or anything related to that. And I thought, I have a daughter in India. And that was odd to me. My sister had always thought she would adopt, but never me. And so that was the first time it occurred to me. And then early on in our relationship, we we discussed, oh, it might be cool one day, you know, but it was never a serious discussion. Yeah, there would be times where Laura would bring home some books from different agencies, adoption agencies, and she would say, look at these children. And... <laughs> And uh, we would, I, I would pretty much ignore those books. It wasn't that I was against adoption, just it just never occurred to me. And so I went to a, a local church a couple of years ago, and I heard an Indian man from India preach a sermon. And that night for me really introduced me to India specifically. I never had given much thought to India ever in my life. And my heart was broken for the Indian people. And so, you know, I came home, I didn't think much about it, but a couple months later, I think it was, I was a youth pastor at the time, it was Friday afternoon, and I got a message from one of our students who had four pictures of four babies who needed a special formula who were in India, and the message was, if these babies don't get this formula, they're going to die. It was an urgent message. And she said, do you think that Reach, which was the name of our youth group, could help in any way? Maybe have a little fundraiser or something. And I was immediately driven to, to tears as I'm sitting there in my office preparing this message on doing God's will or something along those lines. Taking a risk. I think that was the message. <laughs> and uh, these babies, as I, as I looked at them, uh, my heart I knew was in India and was for these children. And so that night I stood up in front of, you got to imagine 13 year olds, 14 year olds, maybe some 16 year olds in there, about 50 of them. And I said, in the middle of my message, as many pastors do, I got very passionate. And uh, I said, we're going to do something special here tonight. We're going to raise, I think it was like $2,400. We're going to raise $2,400 and we're going to do it. And I showed them the pictures of these babies. And I said, I think you guys can do it. I didn't give them any pre-notice, nothing. And uh, that night, those kids raised all that money. Uh, they were pouring out cash, which made me wonder, where did all this cash come from? <laughs> they gave their movie money up, their McDonald's money up, and we raised all that money. Some of their parents helped out when they heard. Uh, that night, we raised the money. And that set us off on our journey because that night, I spoke to the girl who had an adopted Indian brother. And I said, Laura and I have kind of talked about adoption, and her heart's really in India, but we pretty much thought that India was closed. And she said, oh, no, it's not closed if you know, you know, the right people. <laughs> and I went home and I was in the driveway and we just moved into a new house in a nice neighborhood. It was our dream house. And we had three children and I, I just was hit with this is not it. I'd achieved the American dream, a good job in a good church, great wife, three great kids, nice house, nice cars. And I said, this is, this is just not it. I mean, there, there is more that God is asking of us, of Laura and myself and our family. This is not it. And I, and I know that for some people it is it, you know, and there's debate about that. But for us, it was not it. And God was clearly calling me to be a daddy to someone who was fatherless. So I, I walked inside and I put my arms around Laura and I said, haven't you always wanted to adopt? <laughs> and she gave me the strangest look. And uh, just this smile crept across her face. That started us on our journey. We were introduced to Lisa. Lisa introduced us to Sidi, who is our daughter. And that led us down an incredible, incredible journey to bring our daughter home. The next part of that story is that while we were talking with Lisa, we found out that we were pregnant <laughs> with our fourth child. 
And Lisa was the first person that I called crying. Sorry, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, what are we going to do? We're not going to be able to adopt. They won't let us adopt. For us, we became close with Lisa. So she becomes almost like family because she gets to know you in a very intimate way. So Well, and I thought the adoption was over at that point. Yeah, we were brokenhearted. Oh, but I remember when that, I was waiting for that email to come through. And I remember exactly where I was sitting when her picture popped up. I cried right away. So that began our journey to bring homes to D. And it also began our journey to understand adoption. I think when a lot of adoptive couples set out, they look at it as a rescue mission. And in some sense, I think that there is a sense of rescue uh, to adoption. But I think your view on adoption, and I think for many parents that I've spoken to and many books that I've read, it has to change. The rescue part, I think, fades pretty quickly. For us, it was on the plane home. You know, we were sitting there. <laughs> we had this little 10 pounds, 19 months old. She, she hated our guts at that point. She was scared to death. She, she tolerated Laura. We're on this plane home, you know, on Air India. A lot of strange looks from people. And then this, and then Sidi is crying. She won't go to sleep. It's 17 and a half hours. It was a six day whirlwind trip for us. She won't fall asleep. And then this girl sitting next to us, an Indian woman about our age, and this was at the low point of the plane ride home, looks over to us and says, did you adopt her? And I said, yes, we did. And she said, that's a very noble thing to do. You're very, very noble. And I put my head literally in my hands. I would have started crying like a baby if I weren't a 34-year-old man at the time. And I said to myself and to, and to the Lord, I, said, I don't feel very noble. This isn't what I imagined it to be. Not that there was regret. There wasn't regret. It was the pain in Sidi and all the books that we had read about grief and about the whole and the primal wound and, and all those things were coming crashing down, I think. Now that the, the rescue was over, the hard work was about to begin. And I think that a lot of people who are going through an adoption journey, they think that the hard work is the paperwork and the dossier and the fingerprints and the interviews and the assessments. And that is all just like boot camp in a way to sort of prepare you for what's ahead as best as possibly can. I think that the real ride was starting to begin on that plane trip home. But I can also say about that plane trip, the greatest moment in our lives ever was when the clouds broke, we literally could see New York City, and we were getting ready to land. We both started crying, and Sidi is looking out the window, looking at, you know, her new homeland, and not that she knew that, but I had so much love for her, and for Laura, for all my kids, for my Lord, for Jesus, all that, everything in my life, I think, had culminated in that moment, Um, our marriage all the births of our children, everything had prepared us, the grief that Laura and I had already been through. Laura lost her mom when she was 11. I lost my brother when I was 17. All of that, I knew God had brought us to, to that spot. It was, it was an incredible moment. So there was, there was real low points already in a 17-hour plane trip and really high points. And I think that an adoption journey, parenting an adopted child, being an adoptive family, it's, they're full of low points and high points. You mentioned the grief in Sidi. You could see that in her. And Lisa, earlier today, you were talking about looking into the eyes of your little daughter and knowing she was saying something profound to you, even as an infant. Let's talk about that grief that you believe a child experiences, even a newborn, even when that newborn is placed into an adoptive family. 
When I saw my daughter look into my eyes and I could feel the pain in her heart and she was only eight weeks old, but I knew, I knew exactly how deep that pain was. And she was looking at me and I know what she was saying. She was saying, don't ever leave me. It still makes me cry when I think about it, that if somebody hadn't taken her when we did, I think she would have died. The pain was so great in her little face. And I just remember making a promise to her, I will never leave you. And I still feel that today. She's almost 30. (laughs) And I still can feel that pain as she was still in my arms, you know, at eight weeks old. She's 30 now, and she she's doing fantastic in life. Um, But she's had that pain, and I have seen it throughout her life, that it's such a deep pain that they said when she first came into the orphanage that she screamed and she cried, and then all of a sudden there was no sound. There was no sound at all, and she laid there, and they said she wouldn't eat, and she wouldn't sleep, and the pain was just huge. What was the pain? The pain was the loss of her mom. And I really do think there is some kind of cord that attaches children to their moms. I think that happens in the womb. And I think that no matter what kind of care they get afterwards, I think that there is a true loss, a deep loss for each child. And I do think children react very differently to it. Some, you know, you can see it and some you will never see it. But I do believe from my experience, especially with my daughter, that there really is this this true connection and that separation is a true deep loss for that child. When she was two, she was skipping and I was holding her hand and she goes, Mommy, I just love you just as much as my birth mom. Thinking, but you really didn't know your birth mother. You know, it just was like kind of confusing. It wasn't that upsetting to me, but it was really confusing to me to think that she would even think that way, you know, because it's like, well, you only knew her for a month and you were just a tiny baby, but I do think that she really was feeling that at that time. And then one day I picked her up from preschool and she was crying. And I mean, she was really, really sad. And I go, what's wrong, honey? She goes, I know my birth mother's really missing me right now. She says, mommy, she really is. And I go, I believe you, honey. And I'm sure you're missing her too. And she said, yes, I'm really missing her. And then about six, she says, when are we going to go pick up my birth mom? And I said, well, honey, we're not going to pick up your birth mom. You know, we don't even know who your birth mom is. And even if I wanted to, I couldn't find her. And she cried and cried. And from that day on, she never mentioned her birth mother again. It just broke my heart. I really think she just felt like one day her birth mother would be there and everything would be okay. And so I really do believe there is such a deep loss for kids. I mean, there's so many other things that can happen. But for these children, I think that first major loss is huge. And Dan, you're right. In a perfect world, kids would be able to be with their mom and dad, and they would be able to be raised by Christian parents. But we don't live in a perfect world. And really, for children from international places, they really should be with their parents or parents from that country, if that could be the reality. But there's many parents that wouldn't adopt children that have special needs or, you know, even the color of their skins 
makes a difference to some parents. So then the third best is being adopted internationally. And I know what children in those countries, what their lives would be like. Simply, most of those kids would either die for sure, or they would end up on the streets without the love of a family. I think that's a really important point that you said there, and I never really heard it put that way, but third best. I think any adoptive parent, especially an internationally adoptive parent, where they understand, I think that it's a third best situation. Well, and it's a second loss. It's not just a loss of the birth mother, but a loss of the birth culture. I think that parents who go into international adoption, I think it's important for them to understand that. For us, what it came down to for Sadi and for any child who's in that situation is they're, they're in a grievous situation. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell. Sin came into the world, a broken relationship between us and God, and our relationships reflect that. We, we have broken relationships with each other, and the loss of a parent being given up for adoption, whether under whatever circumstances, is grievous. And Laura and I, I think we came to the conclusion with Sadi, and, and I think it took the process of adoption to arrive at this, is that Somebody has to go through this journey with her. Somebody's going to have to go through it. And we might be the third best option, but we're still the best option at this point. And we're going to go through it with our daughter. She has to go through it. She's in this broken world. She's a part of this broken world. And I think adoption is making that choice, is saying, I am going to be in this with you forever. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm walking this path with you forever. When you talk about walking this path, I've, I've had the freedom, I've had the privilege of watching Dan and Laura go from Dan at not even being on the radar screen to them coming over and showing us this picture of their beautiful little girl and then saying, and by the way, we're having another baby. <laughs> but what has been very intriguing and really good for me has been the way you guys have tried to bring us along in the journey. I remember Dan calling and saying, I just want you and dad to understand we're not going to do this the way that you might expect us to. When we bring Sadi home, we're not going to have a huge celebration where 100 people come to greet her. We're going to be very careful. Uh, the bonding process is critical. We're going to do things differently than what you might expect. And here are some books you guys need to read. It was so eye-opening for me, and it was so good for me and for Sadi's grandfather to be educated this way. What we learned was that Sadi is brokenhearted, and she's grieving. And I, I frankly, this is crazy, but I never thought about an adopted child grieving in the way that she is possibly grieving or one day will grieve, might grieve. We don't know. We don't know what she will go through. But to have that information helps me to see Sadi as she really is. And I just love her even more because of that. I, I could cry with you, Lisa, uh, easily as I think about, I, I think every child should have someone who loves them more than anybody else in the whole wide world. And God created mothers to be that person. So when that mommy is missing, that's a terrible thing to think about. But I think education is critical. And not just for the new mommy and daddy, the extended family, the, the key people that are going to be in that child's life need to get on board with this new way of thinking, because I think it's critical that we understand where you're heading. Well, and if it doesn't happen, what might occur then is 
shame associated with any of those feelings. If we're not going to talk about it, if it's not okay to bring it up, perhaps the child will begin to feel shame about whatever sadness or grief that they've carried. And so from the beginning, it was very important to us that we talked about adoption and talked about her being adopted. And even when she didn't speak English, you know, and she was crying, we would still have a one-way conversation with her about why are you crying? And, you know, do you miss your mommy? And, and, you know, I'm sorry. Those were the first words that I said to her. When, when she was placed in my arms, the first thing I said to her was, I'm sorry. We would not have gone into that, I don't know, you could call it the adoption birthing room, you know, where, where you meet your child for the first time. If we had not been prepared for the grief aspect of adoption, we would have been lost. And like I said earlier, we have grief in our life. And I think you have to get in touch with that grief in your life, any grief that you have in your life when you're on that adoptive journey. And I think any adoptive parent who does that has got a good lead in the race, you know, so that when we actually came into that room, we're taking into that room our own losses and we're meeting our daughter who's already has a loss, a huge loss, one of the biggest losses I think you can have. And so, yes, it's a celebratory thing in that we're being united with our daughter, but at the same time, it's a very grievous situation where we have to be able to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it has to be this way. And, you know, one of the things that we had talked about with our family as we tried to bring them along as well is you have this dream, I think, when you start the adoption process. We're going to come home and the airport's going to be full of everybody who supported us and there's going to there's going to be balloons and signs. And I know some people do that. I, I get that. But one of the things that I read that, that impacted me that I believe, and I think because of my own grief, it made me understand is they compared coming home to the party after a funeral. It's that time where everybody decompresses. They, they went, they've cried, they've buried their loved one, and then they come back and everybody's eating chicken sandwiches and potato chips and people are laughing and the family's sitting there. They don't know whether to laugh or cry. There's, there's guilt there. And you wouldn't have balloons at a party like that. And this was coming from, I believe, an adoptive child who wrote this, and, and it, it made sense to me. You know, it made a lot of sense that there's going to be plenty of times for parties. We'll celebrate Gotcha Day a year later, you know, or two years later, or whenever, you know, we'll, we'll celebrate that those days later. And getting that across to our family, I think if I could speak to adoptive grandparents, you know, and, and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, that support that we felt from our family was incredible. You know, we were nervous about telling our parents we're going to adopt. We didn't know what to expect. Breaking out the, the champagne glasses was awesome. You know, it reminded me of the parable that Jesus tells when the prodigal son comes home. And he, it's just a big feast. It's just a big celebration. But still, we had to keep talking about those things. And the grandparents weren't afraid to ask questions. They weren't afraid to ask hard questions. They weren't afraid to talk about their feelings of we're scared, we're this, we're that. And I'll just tell one more story. But when we came home, one of the greatest times in my life was when I called my mom. We had landed, we were on our way home, and Sadie screaming her head off in the backseat of the car in her for three hours on the way home from you know, JFK. And I said, Mom, we're home. And she just burst into this hysterical laughing, crying. But it was her grief. It was her love for this child she never met, her love for us. And just that support just overwhelmed her. And it overwhelmed me. It overwhelmed Laura. And, and just having that family, I think, around you um, is just, it's just critical. I think that's really important, Dan. And I think a lot of families are afraid to tell their parents, you know, that we really need it this way because they don't want to disappoint their parents. And another good point, you've been raised in a family where you recognize grief. A lot of people don't recognize grief. So people don't think they're grieving even when they're grieving. And I think that 
it really is important that people deal with their own grief before they even adopt a child. Because with adopting, with the hurts and the pains of the kids, they a lot of times will reject. They will usually reject the mom. That's a normal thing for adopted kids to do. They don't want to feel that pain again of losing a mom. And so they are going to test you with everything they have. And these kids will do that. And if you haven't dealt with your own grief, your own, you know, stuff about rejection, abandonment, this will trigger things in parents. And I've seen a lot of parents where they really just can't even deal with this. They end up, you know, really not liking the child. And then they end up, you know, thinking that they can't parent this child because it brings so much pain into their lives. They're not doing it because they're mean people or that they're loving people, but because of their own grief and loss, they're, they're feeling this and they're feeling the deep pain of their own grief. So, you know, if I had one recommendation for families is to really take care of your own grief, go to counseling, talk to people, because that is really important. And people, like I said, people don't recognize grief. Grief is pain, and people don't want to feel pain. They do everything but want to feel their pain. And that's that's a very normal thing in life. But, you know, even the kids that grieve, that cry, they scream. I feel much better with those kids than the kids that don't make any sounds, that, that act like everything's okay. Yeah. And giving them outlets for exactly being able to express that. And when they do that at the beginning, it really does help, you know, to have that that pouring out and someone being there. And sometimes the kids won't let you touch them, but just the words and the soothing voices and the hands on the child, you know, they know something, you know, they know that there's somebody there. In my heart too, it's like I can't stand to think of a child, you know, not having at least one person in their lives that says, I'm on your side. I love you more than anything. You know, when you look at your child and you just think, oh my gosh, they're just so wonderful. But then there's a lot of adopted parents who get their child, and I was one of them, that gets a child that um, they really don't. They push every button you have, and the personality of that child may not click with yours, and they do some pretty horrendous things, and they don't want the love, and it's hard to, to really, you know, bring that in. And I experienced that with one of my kids. I felt like a horrible person. I felt like, well, I loved four kids. Why can't I love you? You know, I mean, I had the love of I will do the necessary things. And the parents feel so guilty they won't tell anybody. They're, they don't want anybody to know. I didn't want anybody to know that I couldn't love a child that was, you know, my child. And I couldn't love that child because... You know, I mean, he tried everything he could to have me not love him, but, you know, but still, you know, he deserved that love. And and it went on for years. I mean, it wasn't just, a, a, you know, a year of bonding and attaching. It went on for years and years. But that feeling, that's okay. And and I want people to know if that does happen, there's hope. And, and you know, it's like, if you never met somebody and they're older and, you know, you have to get to know them and grow together and it will happen and it may not even happen the way you imagined it to happen, but with God's love and with prayer, anything can happen. I'm a pastor of a church and I've been pastoring, if you include youth ministry, 13 years. And I've talked to parents without adoptive children. They say the same exact things you're saying right now, you know, where I, I love my child. I don't like them. 
you know, and I think one of the key things that you said there, I hope that anybody listening to this can draw out of that is there is a difference between like and love. A lot of people go on feelings and, and they define love as that feeling. And really love is an act of the will because there are plenty of times where we don't like each other, whether it be your husband or your wife or your children or adoptive child, where you just don't like them because they're getting on your nerves or they're actively trying to make you hate them. And love, I think, transcends that because what happens with love is you will yourself, you know, to love that child, not to feel a certain way. And, and the love comes from feeding them. The love comes from being their mommy or their daddy and being there and not abandoning them. And, and again, it reflects, I think, our relationship to the Lord. You know, our relationship to God is our Heavenly Father. There was one point where we hated Him, you know, where Romans tells us that we were literally God-haters, enemies of God. Yet he continually pursued us and continually loved us so much that he gave us Jesus. I think there's a lot of parallels between God's relationship to us. In fact, the Bible actually uses the word adoption. We're adopted as his sons and daughters so that we can literally call him daddy. I mean, it's the most personal name that you can call the most transcendent God. You can call the most transcendent, omniscient, omnipresent God daddy. And it's because why? Because he loved us. And I think that's, I think that that's reflected in adoption is... We love our children, even, so, even when we don't like them. And I think the point you know, that I hope people hear, as you're saying, is that you know, there's a lot of feelings of guilt when you don't have that feeling of love. And, and there's, there's a difference, I think, between love and like. I really do. And I think it's really important to be able to find those people that you can trust to be honest about your feelings and say, I don't like this child. But... People who let that fester, I've seen that, and it does get to the point sometimes where they just, they don't like themselves so much Mm -hmm. that they can't continue, and and that makes me really sad, you know, when it comes to that, but they really don't know who to tell. What I really appreciate about our conversation is that what you're saying is there's hope even in these difficult relationships, that if God has given you a child— then God has also equipped you to parent that child. And sometimes that's the only thing that can get you out of bed in the morning, is to say, before the foundation of the world was laid, God prepared good works for me to do. And there are good works for me to do today. And one of those is taking care of this child. And so we find that should give hope to a parent who is having that, that life journey. That's a very painful, difficult journey. But when you know there was no mistake in placing that child in your family, then you know that the one who's on your side is, don't be afraid, I will be with you. I will go with you. One of the things that Lisa and I talked about before this interview was how important it is for a husband and wife to take care of their relationship. Lisa, why don't you address that? That's critical, yes, because you can get so lost in your everyday life with your kids, with everything. But that initial relationship, the support of one another is so important and people forget. And pretty soon it's way down the line and they're finding they're really having marital problems. And that would lead on to the kids having more losses in their lives because they have parents who may not be really together any longer. And so I really stress that anytime you can take 
a break, even if it's, you know, out to dinner or, you know, if you can go for a weekend. I know with my family, this job is very intense. I work very many hours, but the one thing that I have to always remember is my relationship with my husband, and it's extremely important to me. And so no matter what's going on, we do take breaks together, and I think that's really important for families to remember. I would say take every opportunity to spend time together beforehand, too. That's really important. And and spend time with your other kids if you have other children, because for a while, you are going to be really busy. I just wanted to bounce off something that you said a few minutes ago about the Lord equipping us before time began. And I'll be honest with you, there's days where I feel like I am not equipped for this. And I think it's really important for adoptive mothers to feel like that maybe they need to know that they should be teachable and they should be flexible. And and maybe what does the Lord want to show me in this? Maybe I don't have it all together and maybe I'm not as equipped as I thought I was. And if that's the driving force, bringing you back to the Lord and bringing you back to his feet. And how do you want to teach me in this moment? Um, I think that can be beneficial as well. We can't do it on our own, you know, and that is, I think that's the difference really, you know, when you're coming from this at a Christian perspective, what we believe is that we are equipped as Ephesians 4 tells us by the Holy Spirit and we are equipped by Christ himself. You know, Christ promises never to leave us or forsake us. So when we go through trials, and Laura and I, you know, we go through this all the time. I think especially Laura, because Laura's at home with the kids more than I am. I can come in and, you know, I'm like the relief pitcher in the ninth inning. You know, Laura's been, you know, pitching the whole game. And I come in and I give some relief, you know, on, on a long work day. And, you know, there's times especially where she doesn't feel equipped. And those are the times where I, I have to encourage her by, first of all, helping in a practical way. But also that, you know, when we're weak, Christ is made strong. You know, Christ makes us strong. He's, he is what sustains us through all of this. And so I believe there is a, a spiritual strengthening there because God doesn't give us any trials that he doesn't believe we can't accomplish through him. That's a biblical concept is that the trial, first of all, the Lord has seen fit for, you know, in particular, you know, when Lisa was sharing about her son, he has seen fit to allow you to go through that trial, a very difficult trial that others cannot handle. And I think that sometimes people have that feeling of guilt of, I'm not able to handle this, but yet the Lord has seen fit to allow you to handle that and has seen you capable and equipped to handle that. And it's almost, in some ways, I've heard some put it this way, it's almost an honor because he's saying others can't handle this with this particular child and this child needs this. I believe you can do it and you can do it through Christ who strengthens you. And I think that's important for adoptive parents to know and to understand that we don't always have it together and we don't always have the equipment. And you can't fix that child. You know, you are not the solution. He's the solution, but you can be part of his plan for the solution in their life, but you can't fix them. I was thinking about that. There's, especially for moms, I think there's this desire to make everything okay for your child. You come to a certain place where you know, I can never heal this place in this child, the Lord can heal the place and the child can get that help and and heal that part for themselves. And there comes a time when your child is an adult and you know you have to let go and just let God do the work that he intends to do on your child. It's hard sometimes, but it's really such a relief to really know that, you know, it's not all in your hands. You're not all responsible for every little thing that happens with your child, um, even though you think it is, especially when they're young. 
And I think that's a, a good point. There's always hope. There's always hope for, for our children. And we don't need to be perfect. We're not perfect. And I have to be on my knees constantly, even today. And as they are adults, the problems seem to be even bigger sometimes to me. But I know I can't have a part, but my part is to pray. Pray for each one of my kids every single day to make sure that whatever the Lord has for their lives, that that's going to happen for them. And it doesn't always look perfect either, and some of it looks like a mess. But I know, I mean, in the deepest part of my heart, I know God's doing a work in me and them, and I'm happy about that. I, I couldn't do this without knowing the grace of the Lord. Well, and if there's one thing that adoption has shown me is that she's not mine. She was never mine. I think as, as a parent, even if you don't feel that you're believing this in your heart, you believe that your children are yours. And what Sadi taught me was that being on the other side of the world, you know, at the point of death, which I believe she was, she was in his hands from the beginning. She was never mine. And I feel like the Lord has shown me that none of my children are mine. And so that kind of releases some of that pressure. One of the illustrations that I read in one of the books that, that continues to stick out in my mind, they compared a child who is an adopted child to a paper cup that's been torn to pieces. If you tape a paper cup back together, you can tape it and glue it. It still leaks. You can make it look like a paper cup. You know, it, can, it can sit there and image a paper cup, but it's never fully restored as a paper cup. And I think anybody who's had any hurt in their life can relate to that. When I take a look at that illustration, I apply the gospel to it. You know, we're all kind of that paper cup. I talk a lot about gospel parenting, and, and it fits with adopted children, biological children, doesn't matter, is just like God has done with us, is to continue pouring our love into that child. It keeps leaking, but if you keep pouring water in, now some children have bigger cracks in, in that paper cup than others. And I think that's the big thing is that, you know, you can't ever compare a grief one with the other. They all react differently. There's no cutout that says, okay, this is how they're going to be. That paper cup always looks different. And I want to encourage parents, as others have encouraged us to do, is keep pouring your love into that child. And, and when you can't do it, the Lord continues to do it for you. And, and continually filling that cup up, it's going to keep leaking. It's going to keep cracking, uh, just like we do. We keep sinning, we keep disobeying, and yet God continually pours out his grace upon grace. And I think that it takes a lot to do as a, as a parent with an adopted child, with a biological child, you keep pouring grace in, grace over grace over grace. I think that that could help us you know, keep perspective you know, on what a child is thinking, what a child's feeling. One of the things that really, it's such a simple lesson, but for me has been profound as Sadia has come into our family is... What is the typical response to a child who has been taken from a messy place like an orphanage and put in a family that is loving her, taking care of her, giving her every single privilege, everything that a child could want she has? But then she says to someone that she trusts, but I am just so broken inside. I just, I mean, I love my family. I love my parents, but I'm so hurting inside. I, I don't understand how this awful thing could have happened to me that I was abandoned. And that person that she's talking to says, what's wrong with you? You should be happy. You should be happy that God gave you this family. God picked you out for them. And I think that's our canned 
stereotypical response to a child who seems ungrateful? How do you respond? How would you respond to a child who expresses those kinds of feelings? And how do you advise their parents to help them process all of that? For me, I know the the most important thing that I've been taught and that has worked with my children is to be really open to their feelings and just to let them express themselves. And there should be no judgment with what they're expressing because that is their their feelings. They are really feeling like that. And it isn't about us. And it's not a personal thing. And if people can understand that even when they're kicking or to make me mad, you know, and I'd go, oh, no, not again, you know, and then he'd just sit and smile at me, you know, and I was like, oh, but the thing of it is, is that he didn't do that on purpose to me. He wasn't trying to, I mean, he was trying to upset me, but not because of anything personal. And if you can somehow believe that this is not personal against you, it has nothing to do, their pain has nothing to do with you, then I think that we can parent a lot differently. Once I figured that out with him, especially Once I figured out this isn't personal, and once I did not get into power struggles with him, because power struggles, nobody wins. And I just learned to parent him differently. I had to learn to parent him differently. And a lot of it had to do with me just making him believe that whatever we talked about was his idea. And he was really great with that. You know, if he thought it was my idea, he wasn't so great with it. But it really was talking things through with him and letting him know, well, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. Is that really what you want? I know you really want to make a good choice. And kids do want to make good choices. You know, they do, even if they make bad choices. And so I think that the main thing is not to take the things personal that that your kids are doing. It's a hard thing, though. But once I understood that, it was like there was just a shift in me. I don't even know if it was that noticeable, but it was noticeable to him. I'm not sure it was noticeable to other people. But that shift, once I made that shift, our relationship did change for sure. One of the things that I, I've told my children, all of my children, since they were little babies before they could even speak, is every night when I'm putting them to bed, I tell them, you can talk to daddy about anything. You know, you can talk to daddy when you're sad, when you're angry, when you're mad. Caleb's, you know, he's a one-year-old. You can talk to me about girls. You can talk to me about sports, when somebody's picked on you, when somebody's made you upset. You can talk to me about the things that you like. And they would start repeating this, even as a two-year-old. I remember the first time that I did that with Sidi and, uh, you know, she's lying in her crib, you know, I'm holding her and she doesn't want me to hold her. And I just started telling her, you know, there, you can talk to daddy about anything. You can talk to daddy about when you're happy, when you're sad, when you miss your mommy in India, when you miss your daddy in India. And I would just go through all the issues with her. One of the things that I added to that is, and now I say it to all my kids, but I started with her was you're mine. Yeah, I know what Laura is saying too when she says they're not ours, and I I understand that that's true. They're not they're not ours, but I think it's an important message for an adoptive child to hear over and over and over again. It doesn't matter what you do, you're mine. You're I'm your daddy. I'm never leaving you. You know, we we find and she repeats you. I'm yours. I'm yours. Yeah, I always tell her I love you, Sidi. I love you, Sidi. I love you, Sidi. And I remember the first night where she finally says, I love you too, daddy. You know, and I mean, that's her learning English, everything, but she understands that. And she used to just respond, I love you, Sidi. <laughs> but when she finally figured out daddy loves me, 
And I think that she knows that and, and, and that she may struggle with that, but constantly allowing them as like, as Lisa, as you were saying to talk about it, you can talk to me about anything. I think that's an, that's a, that's something that we need to make sure all of our children, that there's nothing that they can't talk about. They can talk about that. They want to go meet their mom. They want to go meet their dad and, and being able to say, I will support you in that. I will do all that we can. I mean, Laura and I have even talked about if one day Sadie wants to look for her mom or look for her dad, we hardly have any information. We've kept it all just for her to know and we'll allow her to see that whenever she wants to. But if she wants to, we'll help her because that's how confident we, we feel in our parenting as well and how much we love her. And so if there's a day where she wants to look, we'll help her look. We'll help her do whatever it is that she wants to do. And just knowing that that's open, everything's open. And like Lisa said, knowing, letting them know that we're not going to take that personally, we still love you. And that doesn't change our relationship. If you're sad or if you miss your birth mother, or if you want to look for her, that doesn't change anything between us. Yeah. And for us, and I don't know if this is a naive position, but, you know, I've actually talked to Laura about, so what would you do if her birth mom showed up at our doorstep? And we have both said we'd be happy about that. We wish. I mean, there's been times where I've Googled it looking for Sadie and, and, and I know it's I know it's not going to happen. But I look just to be able to find out, is there more information I can give her? Because I know she's probably going to she may want that. She may not. I don't know. But as her daddy, as with any of my children, I want to be able to give her all that I can to try and help bring healing to her and not being threatened by her questions, not being threatened by her grief and leaning into that grief and saying, we're right there with you. When you went to India, we had the privilege of having your three children with us. It was close to when you were going to be coming home and we were Skyping and everything. So the kids were able to see you and they were great. They had such a good time. But Caleb and Emma were sleeping in the same room and was putting them to bed. And I knew that it, this was getting old. They wanted their mommy and daddy. I was sure of it. They weren't saying too much, but I just said, are you missing mommy and daddy? Yes. And the tears. I mean, they were just a little bit of tears. But I thought, okay, this is where I get to practice what Dan and Laura are teaching us about adoption. <laughs> I said, I know you are. I don't blame you for missing mommy and daddy. Of course, you're missing them. And it's okay. You can miss mommy and daddy. Then they were fine. It was it was so cool to see that just acknowledging the pain. And, and of course, I know that from my own journey in grief of anyone who would say, I know you're missing Mark right now. It gives me freedom to go on. All right. Okay, good. Somebody noticed. Somebody else misses him. I can do whatever I need to do right now. It's acknowledging that that's always going to be a part of me, but it doesn't diminish the rest of me, and it doesn't diminish other relationships. You can't really replace a human relationship with another one. It's always going to be back there, and that's not a bad thing. And that really is a foreign thing for many families in, in saying, if we talk about it, it's going to cause trouble. It's like saying to me, I, I didn't want to mention Mark's name because I didn't want to make you sad. Well, <laughs> you can't make me any sadder than I already am. So, so just saying to Sadi or, or Lisa, to your children, of course, you have that spot in your heart that's aching. But then there might be some who are listening who are saying, so in other words, we are giving carte blanche to children to misbehave and to act out their pain and say, oh, it's okay. I know you're hurting. It's all right. I don't mind if you do these horrible things. What's your response to that? Well, I could say just it, it, for, for grief, um, you know, after Mark died, I was still living at home, you know, and I was 17 years old. And the way I, when I turned 18, the way I acted out is I started buying things. 
you know, and I'm living with mommy and daddy, you know, uh, at home. And I remember when I, I, I wanted to go buy a big screen television, you know, and, and put it on credit. And my mom, you know, they didn't sit there and say, well, he's grieving. This is the way it's going to help him. You know, he's going to be okay. My mom let me have it. And uh, I went ahead and bought it anyway, and she really got angry. And, and, you know, she couldn't discipline me at that point. She could have thrown me out of the house, I guess, but she did not. She let me know this is not acceptable. And I think that's important, you know, and we deal with that with Sidi. One of our adoptive couple friends, multicultural as well, said that they'll be having great weeks, months at a time, just great. And then all of a sudden, their child will have what they call an orphan day. And uh, I've never heard it put that way. And this is before Sadiq was brought home. And, and I remember when we experienced some of our first orphan days, where she just got the look in her eye, uh, this, this, this hollowness, this I hate you kind of a look. And, uh, you know, it was, it, but those times is when, I, I don't know about other parents, I know that some parents are different, but for Laura and I, that just makes us want to squeeze her even more to show her how much we love her. And, uh, you know, we got to pour more into the cup at that point. You know, and, and that often involves discipline. You know, that often involves correction. Yeah. One adoptive mother said to us um, when we were wondering, at what point do we discipline Sadi? She said she is dying to be a betters. Mm-hmm. And if you treat her any differently than you treat the other children, then she never has become part of your family. So but you have to know the balance because I think it was like day two. And we have Sidi at home and you have to understand now she's running and jumping around and she's three years old, but this is, I think day two or three, she's still sick. She's like 10 pounds and I have her, she's crying and I'm holding her real close as I would hold any of my children when they're crying. I'm telling her, I love you. I love you. And then I start telling her to say, say yes, daddy. <laughs> and Laura's in the other room. She says, honey, I think it's a little early for that. <laughs> That was literally day two or three. And I just started laughing. I just held her then at that point. I just held her and let her cry. You know, so there's times we let them cry. And there's other- there's a difference between acknowledging pain and then also applying discipline. I always tell parents, the one thing you need to remember when you go is do not let them get away with a lot of things when you're in India. When you first pick them up, if you're going to tell them no about this later on, they won't understand why you let them do it and then you're saying no now. I mean, they don't understand that. They like to turn on the TVs. They like to turn all the lights on. They like any buttons that they can push. You need to tell them no. You know, you need to, you know, set boundaries at the very beginning and you you can't let them get away with everything because then you're going to have a real mess on your hands when you get home. So I think discipline is very important in setting boundaries with your children as, as early as you have them is, is really important. I think that sometimes parents, um, what we want to do, and I think at least that's a perfect illustration, is we want to kind of weather the storm. You know, when you're in India, you're in a foreign land or whatever country you're going to or if it's a domestic adoption and those first couple of days, you want to kind of weather a storm. What I would encourage parents with is, or discourage them with, discourage them from doing that because those storms are often like hurricanes. They get the front of the storm in India, then there's a little bit of peace on the plane. And then when you get home, the second half of that storm comes over like a hurricane. And the second half is always the worst. You think you're weathering a storm, but parenting is never about weathering a storm. It's about redemptive opportunities. It's always a redemptive opportunity of correction or of discipline. And then also there are parents who they feel so bad about the experience that their child has had, so they want to make up for it. They think this is making up for it by not setting boundaries, by giving them everything they want. 
Now, I would totally agree with that. And, and that philosophy, again, means that we don't understand adoption. I mean, because you can't make up for it. There's nothing you can do to make up for it. You, you just keep on pouring grace and love into that cup, you know, and it keeps coming out, you know, so giving them more of what you think they want, again, it just, it, it compounds the problem, I think. What about siblings? Is there any grief in your children as a result of adoption? I'm so glad you brought this up because I think it's really important and it's one of those issues that gets overlooked. And I don't think we'll know fully until they're older and can really communicate how the adoption changed the family for them and what their experience was. But I know that it did. And there's been a few moments here and there where they've said some things that make me think, okay, we're going to have to have a discussion about this when they're older and can express themselves better. But we've asked them, how did you feel when we brought Sidi home? And I think that what happens is on the journey there, there's a lot of talk about rescue. There's a lot of talk about the orphans in the world. You know, in our house, we do a lot of prayer. And so there's a lot of praying for all the orphans in the world to get a family. That's a lot for a child to handle. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't. I come from the perspective where I think our children need to know more about the world. You know, when we teach them those things and all of a sudden you're bringing that issue into your home and they are told this could be your new brother or sister. If you do that biologically, there's issues. You know, when we brought Caleb home and Emma's three years old, she grieved, literally grieved as if somebody had died. And so we had to work her through that. So now you add on top of that, we're going to bring home a child who looks a little different than you, who has medical issues, who is sick, who is mommy and daddy are going to leave you guys for six days or, or two weeks or three weeks. Uh, we're going to dedicate our lives to this for the next year. And the children, they get all that. I think there's some grief there. There's a grief, there's a little bit of a loss there for them as well. And that can often be seen as, okay, if I feel this way, I'm feeling selfish, but they need to be able to talk about it. One of our children just recently said, yeah, I, I, I was, and she actually used the words, it messed me up. And she's nine, you know, and she was, I don't know, seven at the time. And she said, it messed me up a little bit. Well, how are you doing now? Well, I'm, I'm okay. Well, there, there are some days where I'm still feel a little messed up. And she loves her sister, loves her. But she needs to be able to talk about it, too. Well, and the dynamic of the family changes, as it does with the addition of any child. But I think it changes more drastically when you're talking about interracial issues and, and adoption issues. The, the change is far more drastic than just bringing a baby home from the hospital. One of the most special memories that I have of Sidi, and I have many, many, and I know many more will come. But when you had friends come visit who have an Indian daughter from the same orphanage, and Sadi and this little girl, when they saw each other, and the way they kept touching each other, touching each other's face and their skin, and, and they're just teeny tiny little girls. Again, it was such a profound moment for me to think we have to understand these children know more than we give them credit for knowing. And not that we have to make a big deal about it, but that we have to acknowledge it. I think I keep coming back to that, at least acknowledge this and the other is and don't take it personally as as painful as it is for a mother to think hear her child say i miss my mommy from before or i know she misses me right now or you're not my real mommy it takes a grown up a, a grown up mom and dad to say i know this is not about me i know that god did not create me to fill that need he created me to have a different role to travel this pathway dan as you said i think that's a beautiful picture and really, as I listen to your conversations, I keep coming back to the empowerment of Christ in the calling. I love that, you, that you're reminding us that, yes, he may have called us and he may have equipped us, but we sure don't feel like it some days. And 
for me in my own journey that sometimes that was the only thing that got me out of bed in the morning after the death of our son was to think, this is not a mistake. God believes that I can do this. So I can get up out of bed this morning. And there were some days, though, where I would I would try to function the way I thought I was supposed to function, and all I could do was cry. And I finally came to the point of saying, this is the day God wants me to cry. Now, other people may have seen me in that position and thought, well, God isn't really helping her today, and she's just messed up. But that isn't the way it is. It's in those bad moments and those bad days, as you said, he's driving us to the cross. He's driving us back to himself. And what could be better than that? Really, when you look at the bigger picture, it's a growing up experience for us, whatever the pathway is that God has called us to. I'm reminded of the illustration you had this past week in your sermon about Jesus going to the cross and he didn't quit when he was whipped and when his back was ripped open and he didn't quit when they drove the nails into his hands and when they drove the nails into his feet and and pressed his ripped open back into the splinters of the wood. He didn't quit, you know, when he was put in the grave and when he rose again, he didn't, he's not quitting now. And so if we're going to apply that illustration to adoption fully in the same way, we have to persevere and have to continue to not quit as parents of adopted children. And the reason we're able to not quit is Jesus doesn't quit now, continues, and that in complete victory, he doesn't have any bad days. You know, Jesus is not up there having a bad day. Jesus is up there crushing our enemies, crushing grief, crushing sin. He's putting all things on all of his enemies and our enemies under his feet as a footstool, as the Bible tells us. And in Revelation, Jesus says, I am making all things new. And Adoption, I believe theologically, is part of him making all things new. Yes, in this world, it'll never be completely new, but it's part of his restoration and recreation of this world, where when Jesus, I believe when he comes back and he has crushed all of his enemies and and defeated all of his enemies and he comes back and recreates a new heaven and a new earth, you're not going to have adoption. You're not going to have fatherless children and motherless children. You're not going to have that. You're not going to have these issues. You're not going to have these holes in people's hearts and and these children who are having to grieve over this because they will be restored. That, I think, ties directly into what you're saying is Jesus, because he doesn't have a bad day, because he's victorious, because he's crushing our enemies, because he hasn't quit, we have the perseverance now because Christ is preserving us. Jesus is preserving us. And I think that that is one hope that especially Christian adoptive parents and children have is that my hope's not in my mom and dad, biological or adoptive. My hope is in Christ alone. Uh, my strength is in Christ alone. And I think that's an important point, depending on where you're at as you're listening to this, whether you're a son or a daughter or a mother or father, and where you are along in that mourning process or that grief that we've been talking about, you really have to ask yourself the question, what drives me? What enables me to live day in and day out? What enables me to deal with this grief? And what enables me to love and, and, and to do these things that, that we've been talking about here? Is it Christ uh, or is it some other thing that you rely on? And, and what we would share with you and encourage you with is that it's Christ is the only one who will never, ever, ever fail you. He's the only one who ever brings healing. He's the only one who ever can restore anything fully. And, and so that is where we find peace in all this. That is where we find, you know, our restoration. That is where we find our healing, I think, in the adoptive process and in these relationships where there's so much brokenness. As we close, I'd like for you to follow up on what you just said. And I'm listening to you. And I want to know more about this Christ you're talking about. How can I know him? 
Well, you know, it, there's, there's the good and there's the bad news if you want to know Jesus. And I think that today, a lot of talk about knowing Jesus or Jesus is in my heart or Jesus is this, he's a good luck charm, he's this, he's that. Now, in order for you to know the good news of how to know Jesus, you got to know the bad news. And you know, we've talked a lot about bad news today. And the bad news is that we're in a broken world because we sin. Sin's a serious, serious issue. It's nothing to laugh about. It's nothing to, you know, gloss over. Sin equals death is what the Bible tells us. And every single man, woman, or child, regardless of your position in this life, has been born into this world in sin. And we all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. And the payment for that is death. The payment for that, as we experience now, for many people, hell on earth, where we have these kinds of situations that we have to talk about, death and disease and and the fatherless and the motherless. That's all the result of the bad news. That's all the result of sin. That's all the result of we no longer have a relationship with God. But God didn't leave us in that sin and misery. He didn't leave us in that death. He didn't leave us hopeless. Uh, He promised a redeemer even to Adam and Eve in the garden. And that redeemer is Jesus Christ. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world. That means you. God so loved you that he gave you his son. You know, we've talked a lot about sons and daughters here and how much parents love their sons and daughters. Well, God loved his son with an everlasting love, a love that we only get to experience in pieces. And he gave us Jesus so that he might come and die for us so that if we believe, we can have eternal life. As you just asked, you know, how can I know him? Well, the Bible tells us if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And it's that simple. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved and we can have that relationship be restored into that relationship with God our Father who we sinned against. And our sins are forgiven because Jesus lived a perfect life. He died as the perfect sacrifice. He rose again from the grave, defeated death, and ascended into heaven is ruling even now. And we are called to believe, we are called to delight in Jesus Christ and to follow him and to call him Lord and Savior. And so it's very simple. It's not a prayer. There's no secret formula. There's no incantation. It basically is you ask, Lord Jesus, make me a Christian and he will do it. And then you follow him and then you believe in him and you search the scriptures to know him better. It's complete forgiveness. And that's the good news. You know, the bad news is we're sinners. The good news is that God loved us so much to redeem us and to restore us. And I think that that applies to the situation that we're talking about today to very, very deep levels with with adoption is that what God has done is he has adopted us as his sons and daughters. And now we are co-heirs with Christ. What that literally means is we get what Jesus gets in the end. We get a perfect relationship with the Father and we get to call him dad. And I think that that is what brings healing to those of you who are hurting. I think that's what brings healing to those of you who are grieving and mourning. I would encourage you to confess him as Lord of your life today. This moving and informative interview was produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. To contact Mark Inc. Ministries for more information on other resources, call us toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. Visit us online at markinc.org to see what other free resources are available for Mark Inc. Ministries. Our message today comes from the Learning to See When the Lights Go Out series and is designed to offer help and hope to those who have been struck by the pain from a variety of sources. 
If you or someone you know or love is struggling, you are likely to find a Mark Inc. Ministries resource on that topic to offer a bit of hope to that pain. That website again is markinc.org. You can also contact Chuck and Sharon Betters in care of Mark Inc. Ministries at 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Mark Inc. Ministries, making abundant riches known in the name of Christ.